the best videos are honest, they're authentic. And, you know, we're, you're, they're also entertaining, right? Like they are willing to have a little bit of fun. And um, a lot of companies miss that. Like a lot of companies miss the fact that, especially in B2B, you are selling to other businesses. But guess what? All those people work in other businesses, that what do they do at night? They watch Netflix. <laughs> they watch HBO. That's our guest on today's episode of the podcast. But before I introduce him, let me ask you a question. Who is your main competitor in your business? Now, who or what comes to mind when I say your competitors? And I'm sure you can think of a few businesses who offer similar products or services in your marketplace, or perhaps a person or company that has captured the attention of your customers. And now consider this. As much as you're competing for the business of your customers, you're also competing for their attention. And when you take this into consideration, anything that's captured the attention of your audience starts to look like a competitor. Instead of competing with a few similar people or businesses, you're now competing with everything from Instagram, Facebook, Netflix, and Hulu. In fact, we're living in an age where there seem to be more things competing for our attention than ever before. How much time is someone actually spending on your website, looking at your pages, and reading your blog posts? In reality, the amount of time that your customers and prospects spend with you compared to your direct competitors is probably very similar. However, the ratio of time they're spending with your business versus their Instagram feed or Netflix is a totally different story. So that begs the question, how can you compete with a juggernaut like Netflix for the attention of your customers? Is it even possible? Well, our guest on today's episode responds to this question with an emphatic yes, and he and his company actually pulled it off. They've cracked the code of creating business content for their audience that people actually choose to watch on nights and weekends, times when they'd otherwise be plowing through Seinfeld reruns. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest on today's episode of the podcast, Chris Savage, the founder and CEO of Wistia. Wistia is a video software company that helps businesses create, host, share, and measure videos. Chris and his team are at the very forefront of video and marketing technology, and we're very fortunate to have him on the show today. In this episode, we dive deep into the nuances of a thought-provoking article Chris wrote on B2B businesses becoming media companies, and explore the impact their recent 110-100 documentary series has had on their business. So if you want to learn how to truly earn the attention of your audience and compete with attention-grabbing goliaths like Netflix, this episode is for you. And as always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this episode is 122 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Really excited to get back in touch with you. I was um, reflecting back on the first time we talked. I, I remember it very vividly. I was in New York, living there at the time walking around in a circle in one of the parks, talking to you on the uh, phone. I think it was around like 2010. Yeah, that sounds about right. A lot's happened since then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which is really like uh, what I'm excited to talk to you about. What's happened over the last <laughs> 10 years. But, you know, let's, let's give some people some grounding. Just let's get the 50,000 foot view of who you are and, and what you're doing. So my name is Chris Savage. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wistia. Wistia is a company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We've been around for almost 13 years. There's about 100 people on the team today, a little more than that. And basically what we do is we provide a video platform that you can use for videos on your website, for marketing videos to understand how those videos are performing, what people are watching, what they're skipping, what they're rewatching, all that kind of stuff. And then we take that data, push it into their marketing platforms, help you capture emails, lots of different tools like that. 
Um, and we also have a product called Soapbox now, which is a Chrome extension that allows you to record your webcam and your screen simultaneously. And then you can put really simple edits in so you can make something that feels really professional really quickly. Awesome. You wrote an article back in February, uh, why all B2B brands will be media companies in the next five years. Yes. Um, I read that article, really amazing article on the surface, just super interesting, but also there's a lot more going on to how you, I feel like how you came to being able to write that than one can actually glean from the article. This is kind of the thing that I'd like to dive into with you because I, I think you know, from my perspective, Wistia has been a media company from the beginning in one form or another. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we've, we've been a media company from the beginning. Yes, but we did not realize that we were. We weren't thinking about it in that way. Exactly. Yeah, because it's interesting. You can go back even today to all those videos that you created, you know, 13 years ago. It's kind of like uh, uh, going through a baby photo album. You know, you see like it your is. baby pictures and then... <laughs> and you know, you see how much you've improved over the years. Yes. And, you know, in in this project that you just did, the 110, 100 series, which I just binge watched last night, and it was amazing. amazing. It was absolutely so easy to do because you did such a great job with it. But I think that that project, in it, there's a lot of meta stuff going on with that project. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> in and of itself, <laughs> the fact that you your team was able to do that and you had the ethos of a company to just take the risk and give them the time to be expressive through through medium made it such an amazing project. First of all, maybe why don't you talk about what you think a media company is? Yeah, so I think a media company makes products that are actually content. And a media company recognizes that content is not just you know, in in the online marketing world, content is thought of as like a thing that people search for. And you're, you know, it's like you, you people write blog posts just, just so that when someone's searching for specific keywords, like they'll find it. And a media company doesn't think about it like that. They think about it as like, we invest in making something that's going to be entertaining or educational. That is for an audience that will care so much about it, that that audience will either um, watch it, even though there are ads or they will pay to have access to it. And usually the way that it works is like the content that is released is released first to the most engaged and excited people. So use a movie example, um, Avengers Endgame. There's a lot of people going to see that in the theater and that'll be in the theater as long as people are willing to pay money for it. And people will spend a lot of money to go see it in IMAX and the Dolby cinemas and like all this stuff. And then eventually it will come off of out of the theater and it'll show up in like airplanes and it'll show up in other places and it'll hit iTunes and people will first only be able to buy it. Then eventually they'll be able to rent it. Then eventually it will show up on Netflix and then eventually it'll show up on the Disney thing when that launches. And like there will be people who don't see Avengers Endgame for three years, but when they see it in three years, they'll be really excited. They'll be deciding what to watch tonight and all of that marketing of that content over the years and all the things that they've heard about will, will convince them to do it. And if they like it, they'll be more excited to go back and watch another Avengers movie or another um, Marvel movie. And it's this idea that content, when you have a network of content and you have a brand around that network of content, you can start to engage people and bring them in. And then in return for their attention, you can, you can monetize attention. Um, And I think another piece of why media is important. And I think the way I think about it is like, 
there are a very small number of types of businesses that truly scale without a lot of additional cost. And like the probably the two best are software companies and media companies. And so when you can figure out to act like a media company in how you're doing your marketing, if things work, you can end up with some of the most scalable, the scalable results you can possibly get. Right. Because you are also, Wistia is also a software company. Exactly. Yes. What do you think about this statement? Media companies are the humanization of the old idea of a company. I think that's interesting. I think, yeah, it's like people expect to have a relationship with your company beyond just buying a product now. Like who, who you buy, who you buy from is important. Uh, what the values of that organization are important. And not only that, as from the company's perspective, you're not just thinking about the consumer as someone who's going to buy your widget. You're thinking, you're thinking also of building a relationship with them. What? How can we have a conversation? How can we build? Uh, rapport. These are the questions that we ask ourselves without even thinking about it when we meet each other in person. But as the world gets more digital, we kind of have to reverse engineer how human relationships work. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And I think the other piece of it is that we live in a culture and our culture has evolved so much where today we really more and more rely on recommendations of people we trust. And those recommendations drive a lot of action, right? Like what people are talking about on social, but what people are talking about in Slack, what people are talking about in texting, what people are talking about in group chat. Like those are where we go. We go to those groups when we want to know which products to buy and which companies to care about. And and it, I more and more think that the only companies that people are going to reference are the ones that truly solve a great problem, truly have great products that they have a strong relationship with. Like if they can't remember the name of your company, you're screwed. And so brand is is mattering more. You need a brand that transcends platforms. You need a, a brand that people actually talk about. And I think that's one of the reasons why those relationships really matter and why investing in a longer term relationship with your customers or even people who aren't your customers, like people who will be fans of your brand, but not a customer and still thinking about that as being important, I think is when you can do that, you can, you can kind of break through um, in your marketing in a, in a different way. And is that something that you think Wistia has focused on from the beginning? Yeah, we we kind of focused on it. We focused on it early, and we focused on it almost by accident. Um, you know, we were making content, and people were asking us, "How did you guys shoot this video? Uh, what lighting did you use? What microphone did you use? What what does your studio setup look like?" And to try to shut people up, we made videos that explain those <laughs> things. And then, of course, there was hundreds of comments on those videos, and those videos essentially went viral. And we realized there was actually a lot more to teach. And so we started teaching people about stuff that really, it was related to our product, but it, you didn't, you could watch the video and get value and never use Wistia. And that seemed crazy to do at first, but we started to realize that by actually making content that didn't require you to be a customer and without try, and we would actively think to ourselves, like, let's not try to sell people on what we do in our content. The audience for the content got much bigger, much faster. And then what that meant is that the people in our audience who cared and, and had a connection to our brand, that grew. And then that process started to grow the company. Now, when you learned that, how did you then move forward with intentionality to... Because it's one thing to discover something by accident. And then it's kind of like once you know that you can do it, sometimes when we try to do it, we can't do it. 
Yeah. So we we figured it out and started, we came up with guidelines and where we landed was you should think about marketing a mission, not a product. And your product should help accomplish whatever that mission is. But if you can pick a mission that's big enough, you can actually almost always find a way to make a boring product interesting and a boring market interesting. And um, so you try to accomplish as much of that mission with your content as you possibly can. And then there's going to be some of it that to accomplish that mission, people will just need your product. And we, we hit on that as like a kind of guiding principle. And that set us free. And suddenly the numbers of I, the ideas we had for different types of content we could make went up and up and up and up and up. And that meant that we had more chances of attempting things that people could connect with. And it, it all kind of compounded. Um, and it really worked. And then it, the funny thing, of course, in our case is we we're doing that. And then we thought, all right, we need to layer in other forms of marketing. So we started putting in tons of money into paid advertising. We started doing lots of events. We started this whole litany of other things, trying to diversify. And in our case, it didn't. most of those other things didn't really work. And it was funny because we started to realize, wait a second, we tried all this other stuff. Our content, we're still investing in it in a similar way that we were before. Maybe we should just be going bigger on it. <laughs> maybe we should be investing more. It was just this yeah. very simple thing, like maybe the thing that's worked, let's do more of that again. And that's actually one of the things that led us to do 110 100. And if you look at a lot of the content we've done in the last 18 months, a lot of it has been bigger. A lot of it has been more interesting, covering different topics. The pace is accelerated. The quality is accelerated. And of course, you know, get back to what you do well, and and it's and it's helped us grow. Yeah. And can you share what the production schedule looks like for one of your internal projects? Like, you know, when we go to your your page and we see all these videos, right, we see a single unit of a video that's a deliverable. But one of the things that's clear when you watch 110, 100 is there's so much more. Yes. I mean, we know this, but when you see it, you're like, oh my God, there's just so much that goes into actually getting this right. So from soup to nuts, getting one of your pieces of content out, how long how long of a process is that for you guys right now? Yeah. So for something that is going on the blog, um, the hard part is usually the concepting. It's like the, the pre-production, the concepting of what will best tell this story, what's going to accomplish the goal the best of whatever that piece of content is. And then if it's a scripted video, you can script it usually in an, a day and then shoot and edit in a day. For 110 100, that was a process that started about a year before it was released and included, you know, flying out to California a few times and recording meetings here and uh, just a ton of a ton of post work, a ton of graphics work. So that was like for an hour and 42 minutes, that was probably, you know, seven months of production. So it's, you know, it's it really, really depends on what the content is. But typically, if you're, you're, you basically have something where you're you're able to turn something around in a couple of days. Usually, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of content that's we think impactful, but for even smaller audiences that we turn around in an afternoon. And how much of that do you chalk down to your experience and your capabilities? At this point, a lot of it comes down to experience and confidence that these are worthwhile projects and that it's worthwhile taking these risks. But I think like this scripted video format that is going to be you know, a minute and a half launch video or a minute and a half behind the scenes for a blog post or something, you know, our production there is not wildly different from what somebody else could do. 
I mean, I think it's like having people who you trust and having giving them the freedom to make mistakes and the freedom to try new things. And then, you know, it's usually, again, it's the most important piece is like, can we concept the right thing? Can we, that is where, that is where it's make, where you make or break it because we can, you can, we know that we can do, we can make the videos great. We just, but we can make a great video with a bad concept and it's not going to work. And so it's, that's really getting that nailed is important. And I, I think that was one of the key takeaways from the 110 100 project is, you know, essentially for people who, who are listening, just so you can get this grounding, uh, Wistia hired a, a production company in LA to produce three versions of the same ad, one with a $1,000 budget, one with a $10,000 budget, and one with a $100,000 budget. And this documentary goes into all the different aspects that go into each one of those productions, and you get to see the final products. And there's so many interesting things that come out of that. And I think there's a lot more to be learned from this series than just about video production. It says a lot about how to approach a project in general, uh, the importance of taking action, the importance of spontaneity. Like one of the things that I took away from it is you can easily get bogged down by thinking you need the greatest, the latest and greatest stuff. But the fact of the matter is if you just get up and do something, you can create something that's valuable and engaging. And in some cases, that's going to be a lot more important than the quality. And I think one of the things that also came through is, you know, because of who the production company is and their experience level, they were able to make each one of those videos great. But of course, the challenge becomes when you're working on a $100,000 budget and so many people are involved and so much pre-planning has to go into it. How do you maintain the spontaneity and that kind of like realness of the small production video that can turn on a dime, but plan it and, and polish it so much more? And I think that's where experience comes in. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I mean, and that, you know, I think you nailed the description of what this is and the takeaways and um, it, it's figuring out when you should go for something quickly that, and give yourself as much creative freedom as possible. And when you're doing something that requires the bigger budget and requires the more planning up front, and, you know, being honest with yourself about the gravity and of unexpected impact of a piece of content. And I, I, I find that so many people get themselves hung up overly worrying about the brand impact of something that's only going to be seen by a small number of people. Or will only be seen by a lot of people if it's successful, you know. And it's like you need freedom to learn, um, and without that, you're never going to be able to make enough progress. And ultimately, I think as as a consumer of content, I resonate with that so much. When I see somebody make a mistake, but totally authentically, right, not trying, like it just happened, you can tell the difference. And it's like, oh, these guys, they're they're working through something just like I am. I connect with that. And I resonate with that. I'm, I'm going to continue to watch these guys because they're on a journey. They're not trying to act like they're somewhere they're not. They're just sharing where they are. Exactly. You've been doing this a long time. You've seen the stats. You've seen low production. You've seen high production. So after doing this for 13 years, do you think you're closer to understanding the essence of what people are really engaging with when they're watching videos? Yeah, I think after after doing this for this long, it's clear that what people want is something that's honest and meets them where they are and that like deserves to be a video. I mean, I feel like that's the most fundamental thing. Like I see like these automated videos on news sites where they just like crawl stock footage and they crawl the um the content of the page and try to put together a video so that 
so that so we'll, we'll watch this thing. And if you ever do watch those things, it's not helpful that it's video. It's not helping you at all. It's like it's it's useless. Um, and I think the question when you're making content and you're making video in particular is, is there a benefit my audience is getting because this is a video or not? And usually that benefit is authenticity, connection to the brand, connection to specific people. It's more real in the sense that you're not, uh, you can't fake things as easily. Like faking things in video is of course possible, but it's quite expensive. And um, I think we all know that and expect that. And so when we're watching something, especially that a company makes, we're on high alert for being sold something we don't want. It forces like an honesty which I think is a good thing. And so the best videos are honest, they're authentic. And, you know, we're, you're, they're also entertaining, right? Like they are willing to have a little bit of fun. And um, a lot of companies miss that. Like a lot of companies miss the fact that, especially in B2B, you are selling to other businesses. But guess what? All those people work in other businesses, that what do they do at night? They watch Netflix. <laughs> they watch HBO. <laughs> they, they're not trying to like live stodgy lives. Like, but I think that people get all hung up on that and worried and they don't take risks and then they don't stand out and then they don't understand why it's not working. And it's it's actually, it, you have to think back that these are all individual people that are watching your content. Yeah, and I, I think that it's kind of an unlearning process because there was a big period of time as a business owner, somebody who was starting business, I saw all the content was out there and the way that was teaching how we're supposed to sell to people. It was kind of like the lessons learned from a different era, basically. Yeah. So speaking of the quote unquote sales process, you know, because yes, we we want to have build a relationship with the people we're talking to and not kind of treat them as a commodity. And at the same time, we ha- we also have to have that split vision where we're also thinking about the practicality and the the fundamentals of the business. How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, so um, our strategy is. You know, we try to build the brand and the audience, and that is the the main driver of growth at the top of the funnel. And as people work their way in, you know, we've set up our products to be self service, and they are freemium. And we believe the people who are interested, or will tell others who they think would be interested, will be able to come in and play with our products themselves. Um, and that the products stand, you know, you should be able to figure out for it by using Wistia whether or not it's a good fit or not. Um, then we have teams that are working on making sure that if somebody is working their way through the product, they're touching the right things that we think are the valuable things. And we also have a sales team and a support team that are going to help you if you reach out and have questions. And it's pretty simple. Um, but most of the people we talk to are reaching out to us, like 98% of them. And, um, they are looking at Wistia and they're wondering if it can do X, Y, Z thing and they're not sure or they need help convincing other people inside the organization or whatever it is. And it's just a very simple thing. And we try to take a really long-term approach with all of those customer interactions as well. I mean, our team will happily send somebody to another product if we're not the right fit. Um, or, you know, do they'll go above and beyond basically to make sure that everybody has a positive brand interaction. And even if someone isn't going to be a Wistia customer today, maybe they will be in the future. Maybe they know other people who will. And uh, we've always taken that approach. And so it's just another extension of the same thing. It just is in a one-to-one way instead of a one-to-many way. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of people go home and watch uh, Netflix, HBO, et cetera. There's tons of content out there. How do you distinguish yourself? 
Yeah. So the way to distinguish yourself today is it's changed. And I think just like probably seven years ago, eight years ago, what we saw is people doing crazy viral stunts. And that was like how they would try to distinguish themselves. And then what ended up happening is that evolved towards only big companies being able to do that because big companies would have to put money behind those viral stunts to make them go viral. And and the web has become in two at the same moment, it's become more expensive and harder to stand out. And we've become more reliant on recommendations from people we trust. And so I think the the key to really growing uh, in a, the co- a content strategy today is to f- figure out what niche can you focus on where you can be so focused on this niche and so zeroed in on what their problems are and what they're thinking about and what their, what their opportunities are that you can make content for them that is so on the nose that they will actually pick your content instead of watching something on Netflix or instead of watch that on HBO or what have you. And we see this happening already. I feel like the most common places happening is podcasts. So, I mean, podcasts have obviously been around for a long time, but they've been taking off recently. And there's a hell of a lot of people listen to podcasts on their commutes to and from work. And previously that time was, you know, those same people were listening to music. And where does the music come from? <laughs> it's like mass media. And so in this one way, like, podcasts have eaten into mass media. We see a lot of podcasts that are so that it seems like who in the right, how many people would be interested in um, the story of like Providence, Rhode Island and crime town. It seems like only people in Providence, but guess what? If it's zeroed in enough, you're going to, it turns out there's an enormous audience of people who care about that type of like crime mob drama. And that's true for like every single interest. And so I think the key to a successful strategy is really picking something that is small enough but underserved and just honing in on them and understanding them. And if you can do that, you actually can grow the niche. Like that's the other thing that's I think kind of crazy that's happened where our culture is now such just purely an internet culture. And and what that means is it used to be that people had their most of entertainment was mass media. And then if they went on the internet, you could get into like your weird thing, the subculture that most people aren't talking about, whatever it is, Dungeons and Dragons, what have you. Now, every one of those like weird things, those subcultures are enormous <laughs> because every person in them in the world, even if it's a, you know, one tenth of, of a percent that cares about it, that's an enormous group on the web. And so the key, the key is like zeroing in enough. And once you do that, you can now compete the other uh, mainstream content. Right. And it is important that you, the one who's creating the content, have uh, some sort of relationship and interest in that thing, right? You, you can't just be, well, I guess the question, do you think you can be just um, analytical about it? Okay. I see the numbers. This thing's a good opportunity. Let me do that, even though I don't know anything about this thing. I think you could look at the numbers and say, here's a good opportunity. I don't know anything about it. I'm going to jump in. But I think that's definitely, if you're going to have to sustain your effort there. So... <laughs> Um, that can be a tough, that can be tough. I think you're right that if, if you do already care about that or you have some insight into that niche that other people don't have, that's obviously going to dramatically increase your likelihood of success. Now, after having this experience with 110, 100 and actually seeing the results of that project from your personal perspective, how do your learnings and experience from that inform 
your choices going forward? I mean, it's so it's had a huge impact. I mean, I think it's funny, but exactly what we were talking about is what happened with the project. So we saw um, a lot of interest in the project before One Time One Hundred actually was launched, and then after it was launched, we started to see the views coming in, and a couple of interesting things happened there. So the view numbers were not insanely high at first, but the time spent with brand was really high. Um, like if someone makes it three minutes into one to 100, they end up watching the whole thing basically. And what that meant is that if you start watching one to 100, just as you were describing earlier, you can really get a feel for the importance of creativity and how it's linked to budgets. And it can change how you think about what you're doing. And that's impactful content. And the other piece of it that's interesting is that there's a lot of people who watch it at night and on the weekend. And so what we saw was like, okay, we actually did this thing. Like we made something that's zeroed in on the niche enough that for people, they will sit at home and instead of watching on Netflix, something on Netflix, like, well, I might as well watch this. And I think it's it's high enough quality and it's entertaining enough that you could watch it with your partner, your spouse, your friend, and someone who doesn't even know what it is can enjoy it. So what that said to us is like, wow, how much more opportunity is there for this? And that we started to realize that this is actually probably just the very, very beginning of this. And so it's totally changed our strategy. I mean, we built out a new physical studio here at Wistia. We have like five shows that are in some stage of pre-production right now. And they're gonna we're gonna have more shows. Like those shows will start coming out soon. And there's just a lot more people involved in it. I mean, one of the things that was interesting with 110-100 is the promotion around it was incredibly complicated. So we made the the documentary, the four-part documentary, but then we realized we needed a trailer because we knew we needed something quick that people could watch um, to get an understanding of the overall project. And we knew we wanted to build some hype for the project. So we released the trailer before um, 110 100 came out. And then we sent it to folks and said, hey, we're doing this. Are you interested? If so, we're happy to do interviews on it. And so we basically did a press tour. So I ran around and did probably... 15 or 20 interviews with folks about the project, why we were doing it, what we were hoping to uncover. Those folks got to write about it before the project came out and they got different insights like slightly than were in the actual uh, documentary itself. And then we put some money behind promoting the trailer because we knew that our audience would likely care, but how many other audiences would, we wanted to understand that. So we tried, you know, putting in front of different demographics on Facebook and YouTube and kind of dialed in what we thought was going to be the most impactful there. Yeah, there was there was many, many other pieces. We did a live, we actually released it first in person at a, a theater. So invited people to come to that who we thought would be like really excited about it. That was really fun watching a theater, watch the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah and so it was just kind of Again, and I keep saying treating content like it's a product. I know that might sound confusing, but what it means is like content is thought of normally as such a transactional thing. And read one blog post, gone, and then it's out of your head. And if you think about it as like actually having real value, you can keep telling people about a blog post that's really impactful. And if it is really impactful, they'll come back to it and they'll tell their people about it and they'll write about it. And uh, that's that's something we found has been much easier to do with video than blog. Um, and what it's meant is that we've been able to build an entirely new audience that cares about this that hadn't even heard of us before uh, we did 10-100 in the first place. And how did the whole Webby thing happen? 
Yeah, so the Webby thing, which is super exciting. We just won in branded entertainment. Um, we were up against like Google and Lenovo and Uber and all these folks. And um, I, at some point, someone said, hey, I think you guys... So I, I can't remember exactly how we first got nominated, but um, we had to do a bunch of work telling them similar things to what we're talking about, like behind the scenes and um, why we did the project and all that kind of stuff. And then it went to public voting uh, where people could vote looking at us and our four competitors in the category. And then there was a, a private judges voting. And amazingly, we won both, which is so cool. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I've known about the Webby's for a long time because, you know, pre, I mean, it's tw- I think it's the 23rd year of them. So <laughs> there, was a, there was a moment when they started that was like, if you want to know what shit is cool on the web, you basically need to look at the, what the Webby's has. So um, yeah, it's cool to be a part of it now. Well, what I think is really encouraging about not just the fact that you guys want to webby with it and uh, not just the fact that um, a lot of people are paying more attention to more independent produced content is it's transferring attention away from a smaller group of large organizations to a larger group of small communities. Yes. Which is really encouraging for me, you know, because it's just, it's just more, uh, I, this word is so overused, so I'm sorry. It's more authentic. <laughs> you know, it's just people being people, yeah. doing what they like doing, yeah, and giving others an opportunity to um, share in it. Yeah. I think it shows us that small brands can compete with big ones when they're focused enough. And that is like another way of saying what you're saying. That, But for me, is that's like the most impactful part of this. It's like we know this audience really well. And you'd think uh, for a Webby, you know, these other companies are trying to deal with a much, much broader audience basis. And I think they all probably had more views than us. But I think the impact of our views was greater. You know, like I think when we told people, um, hey, we're up for a Webby, a lot of people who watched it actually went and voted. Yeah. (laughs) And I think in a lot in the other cases, I would bet that most people forgot they even saw the content. Yeah. I don't even know of the other content. So that's one thing. (laughs) right (laughs) yeah so you know i've also noticed um in wistia you've got you come out with channels you now come out with soapbox so there there seems to be also a diversification in in terms of your your software offering because for a while it was the wistia player basically and everything of course that goes on behind the scenes and the analytics there's tons of stuff but in terms of perception there was one thing that everybody was engaging with. And now, you know, in, in a short period of time, you've, you're starting to add more products and offerings. Is this also in response to people asking, or was there another reason why you started doing this? Yeah, there's a, there's a few reasons why. I mean, people were asking. Um, we also just realized that the problems we could solve were bigger than some of the problems that we were solving previously. Many of these things like channels is a good example of something that we saw that having a channel of long form content for 110 100 was incredibly impactful for us and uh, you know we've learned over the years that how things are presented matters so if you could present things and in an elevated way people assume that the content probably is of a higher quality they go into it thinking differently and you know previously we'd always solve that problem with design but we realize a lot of our customers don't have extra designers to invest this much in this like we're a video company of course we're going to invest a ton um, and all of these things. 
Um, and so we started thinking like, can we, can we use the product action to make it easier for people to do that? And we started doing that and the response has been really amazing. I mean, Soapbox is the same thing. We have an incredible video team here. We make, you know, hundreds and hundreds of videos a year. And we started to realize what if we could put this power in more people's hands, even internally? Like what if we just had a tool made it so anyone at Wistia could make something really professional? So we looked and we thought like, okay, the key to doing that is making something that is actually has the right constraints in it. And if you write, make the right constraints, it doesn't feel like you're editing. And that's kind of the key to the whole thing is you record your webcam and your screen, which lends itself to doing presentations, which is an incredibly common thing for people um, when they're communicating internally. It's also incredibly common in marketing. It's incredibly common in sales. And so we thought, let's try to make something that does it all in the cloud, makes it super simple. You do not have to be a video editor to make something that looks good. And even the switching in Soapbox is kind of borrowed from live television where they do live edits you know, of picking between cameras and it makes something much more engaging to do that. So we thought, let's do the same thing here. Um, and so it's just like problems that we've seen with ourselves internally and problems that we, when you start looking at it, covering with customers that actually a lot of folks are running into and, and um, you know, looking for software that makes it easier. And so that's, that's why we've started to go down that direction. And you'll see more from us um, trying to trying to make it easier to make great video and trying to make it easier to market your content um, and get more out of it. Yeah, which is great. And again, it, it it's almost as if you could have taken that lesson directly from your one ten one hundred experience too, because they talk a lot about the value of constraint. Yes, and the fact that the iPhone exists means that a lot more what could have been so hard to make ten years ago can be made on the spur of the moment. And now Soapbox is also a tool that can help do that. Like for people who may not have done it before, now that the tool exists, they may do it, which means that there's going to be more people doing, sharing what they want to share in a spontaneous way. That's exactly right. Is there anything that's top of mind for you that you think uh, would be interesting for our audience? I mean, generally, I think people listening to this are uh, solopreneurs, you know, considering membership sites now, and maybe they're excited by what we're talking about. You're like, yeah, I've, I want to do video or I'm doing video. I've always wanted to do it. And I, I find these obstacles. What are some things that you think can be helpful for them to focus on and and kind of not get in their own way about it? Yeah. So I, I think the key, if you have not been doing video or you're thinking about video is to just start. And I tell people, inside big companies that are concerned with taking risks. And I tell people it's small companies who are afraid, you know, because obviously brand does matter. And if you make crappy videos, that's going to hurt your brand. So how do you make something that's good is you should give something like Soapbox a whirl um, and just make something. And the hardest videos you'll make will be like the first five. So you might as well make five the first day, you know, <laughs> like, um, which is possible. And I, and I think that it's, it's really when you start to put on, turn on a different part of your brain that says, wait a second, the people saw my face when I'm explaining this concept, they'd probably be more engaged. Or if they saw me walking through my product, they'd be more engaged. Or they saw me going through this presentation, that'd be more engaging. And so it's just starting to trust yourself and realizing that that's a muscle that you can build. Um, and there's a ton of other free tools that you can use to play around with. And I would just encourage you to play and if you take a risk and no one sees it, like you didn't even really take a risk, you know, uh, in a lot of the cases here, it's, I've talked to people who are afraid to put their website up 
because they, they want to make sure that everything is just flawless that's on there. And it's like, well, I don't make it flawless, but I don't know how the hell anyone's going to find that website. Like, you know, it's like, yeah. And there is no such thing as flawless anyway. There's no such thing. And the problem is distribution. It's, it's not like, are you going to make something that's horrible? So you can make something that's amazing and people won't see it. Like, right. And so, yeah, I think it's the key to a lot of this is trusting yourself and just getting started. And I think a lot of the points you made earlier in terms of picking topics that you're actually passionate about, look for a niche that's completely underserved. I think, if you can if you can start to do that you can make stuff that is actually more engaging than anything else out there because in many cases there's nothing else out there another thing that's going on in video these days is live right so do you have any thoughts around that in terms of is one better than the other is there a way to use them together or any other angles that you see yeah so I think live is important when you're trying to create urgency for people to be present for something. Sometimes you can take live content and then also have it be, you know, record it and distribute it later. And it depends on what the content is, but that's like a, that can be great. But I think it's, it's when you want to create urgency around something, you want people to sign up for something live is like not a bad way to do it. We see a lot of people using tools like zoom to do this now. I think Zoom Zoom has like probably the best live conversation tool at this moment, and so we see a lot of people, a lot of folks using that for their webinars and and things. Um, Facebook also is quite good for that, and so we see people doing that. And I, I think it is feels scarier as the presenter um, because obviously when your screw ups, no taking them back, no second takes. But uh, that's also why you can sometimes get more people to show up. But remember, we live in a global world and everyone is not on the same schedule. And so that is the, the other problem you run into with live. Like if you're trying to have customers around the world, live can be challenging um, or you have to do things multiple times or whatever. And so I do think people are used to and expect that they can, they can watch pre-recorded things when they want. Then what is the downside of a of a because I think live when it is live, we forgive a lot of the production aspects of it because typically, you know, we we understand oh, it's a live recording, therefore audio, video, there's there's some things that may not be right about it. And we forgive that because we're watching it live. We understand. But if we're gonna share that video later, I, I don't as a viewer, I don't feel uh, as engaged in a live video that was recorded, that's pre-recorded or was already already happened. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly. I mean, you're saying the exact points. Like, if if there's some reason why what you're announcing or discussing um, is better, maybe because there's a Q and A that can happen live, then that is where I would push towards live. And I think live is a good way to try things because of this exact thing you were talking about. Like, people forgive production values. Um, but you, it, it, you're going to have to have different content and a different approach when you are doing pre-recorded content. And the nice thing is there, of course, is you can do multiple takes and you can edit out the stuff that didn't work. And, um, yeah, I think a balance makes sense for people, but it really comes back to like, what are you comfortable with? What do you feel like? Where do you feel like you're, your your best self? Where do you feel like people are want to be met? You know, if everyone's saying, they want to come to your live events or because you're streaming yourself playing video games on Twitch, then yes, that's what you should do. And if that's not what they're saying, then, you know, maybe not do that. And a lot of this is going to come down to 
who your exact customer is and what they what they want, how they spend their time. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, it's been great reconnecting with you, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and share all this stuff with me and really appreciate you and your team creating 110100. It was really enjoyable to watch and uh the other amazing thing about it is you 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 had a great balance of yes, this is a documentary and we're also going to teach you some stuff. We're going to teach you about production design. We're going to teach you about some other fundamentals of pre-production and post. It you know, it just well deserved for everything that you're getting from that and I I hope that there's more to come and um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing it. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to reconnect. I mean, it's been such a long time. I'm excited to hear about everything that you all are doing and I, I hope we reconnect soon. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to Chris for coming on the show and sharing from his knowledge and experience. My hope is that you now have a better idea of how to truly earn the attention of your audience. If you haven't read Chris's article on B2B businesses becoming media companies or watched their compelling 110-100 documentary, I highly recommend you do so. You can find links to these resources at subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 122. There you'll also find the show notes, a complete transcript, and all the other resources mentioned in this episode. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more interviews with successful entrepreneurs, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you know someone who you think would benefit from hearing this conversation, please share this episode with them. Coming up next on the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast is an interview with Gillian Perkins. Gillian is an entrepreneur who has tried practically everything from paperback books, rental properties, and membership sites in her quest to earn passive income. Gillian joins us and shares key lessons from her journey, why she thinks membership sites are the best way to earn passive income, and how she got her first 300 members on board. We have an amazing discussion and you won't want to miss it, so I'll see you next time.